When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Ah, uh, bonjour. Welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, uh, we will be speaking French, or at least speaking French-Anglo relations. Rishi Sunak's off to see Emmanuel Macron this week. So we thought we'd have a rootle round and just how cross-channel affairs uh, currently look, uh, with a particular look back at um, politicians trying to speak French, which is quite funny. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. First, as ever, we kick off with The Columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, at this time, we always have a chat with two of our favourite columnists. Uh, Danny Finkelstein will be back next week with his new sidekick yet to be unveiled. Uh, but this morning, we are, I'm joined in the studio by Times columnist Ian Martin. Morning, Ian. Hi there. And uh, former TV journalist and president of Murray Edwards College in Cambridge, Dorothy Burns on the line. Morning, Dorothy. Good morning. It's nice to have you back, both because you were with us a couple of weeks ago. A few weeks, weeks ago. Weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, nice to be back. Uh, let's talk uh, small boats. It, everyone acknowledges a big problem. Uh, everyone's uh, come up with ideas of what to do about it. We get the latest round of ideas uh, today from Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak saying, it is fair for those at home and those who have a legitimate claim to asylum, uh, basically to be able to, to just remove people and send them to, mm. well, possibly Rwanda. It's going to cause a huge row. Is it, are, the, are these plans, Ian, do you think, are they about actually solving the problem or about having the huge row? No, I do think it's about both, actually. I mean, it clearly is an enormous problem mm. and it's been beyond governments for the last sort of 10, 15 years to solve. So I think it's serious. But it's also about the fact that Tories are behind in the polls, isn't it? It's about the fact that, uh, you know, reform, um, the Nigel Farage, mm. Richard Tice vehicle, is still sitting on the, in the most recent polls on somewhere between 6 and 8% uh, percent in the polls. And those are votes that the Tories need back. So he's trying to do two things. But I do think it is... Uh, a genuine attempt to deal with a problem which may actually be impossible to solve mm. and is going to be fought in the courts, be very difficult at Westminster, but it is a genuine problem I think he's dealing with. Dorothy, what do you make of it? Because there's, there's clearly a, a tension between people who think we should abide by uh, the European Court of Human Rights, the Human Rights Act, the right for people to come here and claim asylum. 
while also being very concerned about the huge numbers of people that are coming across the channel in small boats, putting their, their lives at risk. And that's just a situation which, which isn't tenable in the long term. Well, you don't solve a problem by doing something that's immoral. This goes completely against the spirit and the letter of the 1951 Refugee Convention, which Britain was one of the key writers of. And I look back in time at another group of people who were denied the right to enter this country because they had no legal route of entry and they were Jews before the war. And I, we don't want to go back to those days. There is no legal alternative route of the type that is being bandied about. I think this is nakedly political. They know it will never go through the courts, but they'll be able to stand at the next election saying, look, we were really trying to solve this problem and these terrible lawyers stopped us doing it. Vote for us. Uh, we'll come on in a moment and talk about the, the, the Sue Gray uh, debate and yeah. the, the concern that that's a sort of eroding norms and the idea of impartiality and so on. Is there a risk here for the Conservative Party that it, the, the, the whole point of long-standing international agreements, big moral questions, is that they are supposed to survive contact with all eventualities. It's not that, yes, we'll uh, we'll sign up to those things up until the point, actually, it was a bit difficult, so we're not going to do that anymore. But they don't, do they? I mean, that's the world has changed a lot since 1951. I hear what Dorothy says, and I sympathise with it, and it, of course, is an enormous human question, but this is happening now on a scale that you have to po pose the question that if not, this policy or something like it, then what? Which is, uh, and I'm not saying this policy will necessarily work, but you look at the rate at which this is happening, plus legal migration, and um, I, I think immigration and refugee status, uh, immigration is a positive thing, and refugee status, we have op international and moral obligations, I accept that, but leaders have, an, have a duty as well to consider scale. And if you look at the scale at which this has happened over the last 10, 20 years and the impact that that, that has had on politics, it turned politics upside down. If people just say, look, if you want to talk about this or you want to address this issue, you're, you're an extremist or you're on the sort of Farageist wing, then that will create, as it has done already, millions of voters who feel that things are stacked against them and that no one is listening on this fundamental but on issue. But on the, on the politics thing, the, the interchangeability between migrants, refugees and asylum seekers yeah. in this conversation, the truth is and immigration... Even students. And even students. In, yeah. but, but immigration, legal immigration, has gone up. Mm. And it's gone up uh, from people outside the EU. The idea this government has got a... Uh, taken back control of immigration. This isn't true because they won't make the case for immigration being a positive. So they're quietly letting the numbers go up while making a huge storm about the people coming in small or, boats. Or something else has happened. And I know we're going to talk a bit later, I think, about sort of social tolerance mm. and changes in social attitudes. Isn't it interesting that post... Um, all of that fight in the middle of the uh, middle of the last yeah. decade about uh, migration, people are the poll show much more relaxed about legal migration going up to the levels that you described because you could argue, some people would argue that um, a degree of control has been yeah. returned, a sense, of returned, being a sense that yeah. there is control, but the policy is clearly not working in terms of 
the different case for uh, refugees yeah. and illegal migrants, or migrants rather. Uh, let's move on and talk about the, the, the Sue Gray debate then. There was lots of anger in the Commons uh, yesterday uh, if they got an urgent question of it. I mean, justified and affected probably in equal measures on on, on both sides. Um, Dorothy, what do you make of this? I mean, it's not quite the same, but you were at a public service broadcaster where you weren't supposed to have uh, public views and you've got public views now. So there's a slight sort of overlap there. What do you make of Sue Gray going from being not just any old civil servant, but basically the one who knows all ministers' secrets because that was her job to do propriety and ethics? Is this a smart move by her and Keir Starmer? Well, it doesn't feel very politically acute, does it? I suppose if she's the best person for the job, she had the right to apply for it. I just think she's a glutton for punishment. I mean, <laughs> if what she's just done wasn't bad enough, she's now going to go into the heart of the Labour Party, which must be the most nightmare job that I can think of. I mean, I took a lovely job sitting in a college. I'm looking out at gorgeous daffodils and oh. walking about. She's definitely John the short straw with that job. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good point that you make, uh, Dorothy. What do you make of this, Ian? Because it, it, it strikes me it is possible to think both that she didn't bring down Boris Johnson, mm. but it's also not great her doing this. I think it is extremely weird. And what's fascinating about this is watching some of the people who rightly say we must restore high standards to public life. Isn't Boris Johnson a disgrace? It's appalling how low the British system has fallen. And then, because it's the Labour Party and it's the incoming government, you say, well, actually, no, no, I'm sure everything... This is absolutely fine within the rules as precedent. Both, as you say, can be, can be true. I, I wonder whether it's going to happen actually. I wonder, That's interesting. you just look at the way that the story broke. Um, Labour seems to be under quite a bit of pressure. Uh, I wonder whether the appointment will ever happen. Also, I would pose the question, is she the right person to be chief of staff? I mean, uh, Jonathan Powell, that's a very, did it for Tony Blair. It's very different. You're not running a government. You're trying to get to win power. Um, how good is she at party politics in yeah. that sense, at, at, at electoral politics? Um, so we'll see. It's an interesting point you make about uh, the sort of whether or not it'll happen because lots of people saying, well, you know, is Keir Starmer, why is he announced it now? Why is he done it now? The truth is Joe Pike at Sky News broke the story in the beginning of last week that, yeah. that they were considering recruiting Sue Gray and then that very quickly sort of seemed to be brought forward that, yes, that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. But you do wonder whether it might have just been a conversation about her possibly having a role in the next Labour government, you know, the talk of her possibly having been the Cabinet Secretary or something. That would strike me as a much more sensible thing if on day one of a Labour government she'd yes. announced Anne Sue Gray will be the new if she secretary. If she'd taken a, yes, a, a year long or an 18 month yeah. break from government the moment that Labour approached her. Yeah. Um, that, but it's still... Or just remained in government and just only did this when he arrived. You know, don't even have the conversation with her. Wait until... Because you sort of muddy yeah. the water if you do it now. Yeah, but I, I, after the turmoil that there's been in, yeah. in British politics and the disruption to the, to the political system and questions about civil service integrity and all of the yeah. shambles of the last um, five, or six, five or six years, just the irony that one of the people who's associated with, uh, seen as being one of the good guys, if you will, someone of extraordinary integrity, someone that other civil servants and politicians could take their yeah. concerns to, decides to execute what looks like a rather... Um, Bizarre manoeuvre, an yeah. odd choice. 
Yeah. It does seem pretty remarkable. Uh, John's been in touch. Why are the Tory journals at Times Radio so exercised by the recruitment of Sue Gray by Labour is absolutely laughable. So, strictly speaking, us, John. There was a huge debate about it in the House of Commons yesterday. Uh, and it's all in the papers today. But anyway, good to hear from you. Let's turn our attention now to some new polling. The UK now ranks as the most socially liberal... Uh, what among the most socially liberal countries internationally, according to some new research, have found that views on issues including homosexuality, divorce and casual sex have all changed incredibly quickly. Uh, well, Bobby Duffy is from the Policy Institute at King's College London, who's been looking into all of this. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Matt. Um, the interesting thing about this is just how quickly attitudes seem to have changed. Yeah, no, it's really easy to forget that things were that were real pressing moral concerns for people have, have very quickly become facts of life. So if you go, if you go back to 1981, there was only 12% of the UK public who thought that homosexuality was justifiable. But even by 2009, that had only gone up to 33%. But when we did this World Values Survey uh, last year, that had shot up to 66%. So it's really, in relatively recent times, I, I was born in the 1970s and always think of the 1990s and 2000s as pretty liberal on issues such as that. But um, it really wasn't when you look back. Um, and, and is there a particular reason that you can identify as why why Britain has moved more quickly than other countries? Uh, I think that it's all countries have moved on these sorts of things, and it's just that we've moved slightly more on uh, some of them. And w when you look at the international league tables on things, we come about third or fourth in just about all of these issues across the twenty four countries um, that we compared here. The change is, is really varied. The reasons underlying the change is really varied across different issues. So on, on things like homosexuality, uh, all generations have moved. This is not really a cohort generational effect. It's uh, more of a period effect where the, the norms and cultural and social uh, values have kind of shifted across all but the very oldest of the population. But on things like uh, acceptability of casual sex, that is hugely generational. So you've got... Uh, two-thirds of Gen Z, the youngest generation, saying that that is justifiable, uh, but it's only still a third of the baby boomer generation, uh, despite their kind of reputation of swinging 60s and growing up in that kind of era. Still only a third of baby boomers who uh, think that's acceptable and even lower among that pre-war generation. So it's kind of, it's that interplay of generation and uh, changing social and cultural norms that we pick up from all the cues around us. Yeah. Ian, you've been a journalist for a long time. Yeah. Just you need to look at front pages, particularly tabloid front pages, to see just how how far attitudes have moved. It's remarkable and very, very positive, isn't it? You you think of jokes that would have worked on the on the front of a red top, um, you know, or, or that a columnist might make just twenty or thirty years ago, completely gone. Also, you think of. David Cameron uh, announcing the move on gay marriage in 2013, I think, at Tory party conference. And it seemed like uh, an, an edgy move, whether or not you disagreed with, uh, with yeah. it or agreed with it. And it turned out to be absolutely the, the correct decision. It carried an element of political risk at the time and tens of thousands of words were, were written about it. And there was a lot of unhappiness among Tory members. And it just turns out to have... It, it's just a complete non-issue or it's a very positive issue and that is um as bobby says that well it must be to do as he describes it with the interaction between generational change changing social norms and people just picking up signals from others about what is um what's regarded as sort of stand standard and and, and normal it's it's really positive 
Dorothy, what's your, your reading of this? Well, I think that a major thing that happened was that older people realised that their younger relatives and even their older relatives were actually gay and always had been. And it was when everybody suddenly realised, oh, I'm actually related to somebody gay, that they had to stop being prejudiced. But it is remarkable. Last week, as I'm sure you celebrated at the Times, was LGBTQ plus week. And here we had a fantastic party and it was attended by a former president of our student union who revealed that in the 19, mid 1980s, she was the only out lesbian in this college. Now to be a lesbian and to be out as a lesbian would just not be an issue. But the change was so remarkable. She was surrounded by all these dancing, happy young women and men. And she just kept crying because it was so wonderful. She kept saying, I feel I'm in a dream. This can't be real that things have changed so much. And then I suppose that's the, that's the real life impact of that, the, 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 where attitudes have changed and it makes people able to, to live their lives. We shouldn't get too carried away, though, Bobby. There were still some things. We're still quite keen on the death penalty, which obviously became an issue a couple of weeks ago after Lee Anderson, de yeah, um, no, no. deputy chairman of the Tory party, said... To, uh, well, he said no, nobody committed a crime after after being subjected to the death penalty, which has had a 100% success rate, Yeah, you can't fault his logic. Uh, we're still quite keen on that, Bobby. Yeah, that, that is the one that stands out as quite different compared to the, the other ones. We're, like I say, we're nearly at the top, uh, third or fourth on most of the issues, but we're very mid-table on the death penalty. So 21% of people in the UK think the death penalty is justifiable, but another 35% think it may be justifiable in some circumstances. And it is a much more political issue than many of the other trends that we looked at. So there's a big gap between uh, Conservatives and Labour supporters. Mm. So 35% of Conservative supporters think it's justifiable, half that for Labour supporters. So you can understand why it comes into politics quite a lot. It is a signal of a type of worldview that's yeah. related to our political identity. Bobby, thanks for that. Bobby Duffy there from the Policy Institute at King's College London. One thing, I was, I was just scrolling through my phone, Ian, because I was trying to find this at the weekend. Peter Kyle, the Labour MP, tweeted he was in a supermarket and he couldn't, the shops were empty. The Tories had wrecked my plan to cook Nigella Lawson's Italian roast chicken with peppers and olives for friends this evening. What a tragedy. Andrew R.T. Davis, the leader of the Welsh Conservatives, uh, tweeted, tell me you're a metropolitan liberal without telling me you're a metropolitan liberal, as if this is obviously a terrible thing to be. The truth is... The Conservatives can't set their face against metropolitan liberals, can they? If we, if we are becoming more liberal in so many ways. So or, uh, that's a really good point. And it's a reminder that the 2019 electoral coalition that Boris Johnson assembled did have within it metropolitan yeah. liberal elite. The Tories didn't win just because of the Red Wall. Right, coming up next, we're speaking French. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard. 
But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Ah, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, Rishi Sunak's off to France this week to meet the French President, Emmanuel Macron. The first UK-French summit in five years. So what we thought we'd do is unpack relations between London and Paris, which have begun to thaw after years which saw spats over migration and fishing rights. Plenty of crosswords between Boris Johnson and Macron. So a bit of helpful advice for Rishi Sunak as he crosses the channel. So I've been asking for the most French thing that's ever happened to you. Uh, <laughs> David in Belfast says, in standstill traffic on a French motorway, someone got out of the car beside us and jumped through the open window of the car in front. The traffic started to move with his legs sticking out of the window. I'm not sure how typically French this is, although I think both cars were either Peugeots or Renaults, which makes it more French. Ben in Twickenham says, I was in Paris and a tramp asked me for a cigarette, so I offered him a silk cut. He declined, shrugged and said he preferred Goulois. <laughs> and someone else in the text says, the most French uh, thing uh, that ever happened to me, my French brother-in-law stormed out of his own child's christening because the champagne he'd built over had been chilled in the freezer. Thank you very much uh, for all of those. Just some more of your tales of uh, the most French things that have ever happened a bit later on. So, Rishi Sunak is heading to France. Uh, having struck his deal with the uh, EU of the Northern Ireland Protocol, some now hope that maybe he could do the same with resetting relations with Paris, including over his plan to stop small boats crossing the Channel. We'll talk about all of that in just a moment. But first, here's my guide to Anglo-French do's and don'ts, or as they would call it, Faire et ne pas faire. Do try to speak the language, like Tony Blair showing off in 1998. Je suis resté Maintenant, je suis Premier Ministre de la Grande-Bretagne depuis dix mois. Alors, j'ai fait des progrès, je crois. Twenty years later, what Theresa May lacked in her accent, she made up for with enthusiasm. Je sais que notre pays serait plus pauvre si vous le quittiez. Et je souhaite que vous restiez. Don't, when trying out your French, tell your counterparts to get a grip or give you a break. I just think it's, it's, it's time for some of our dearest friends around the world to, you know, prenez un grip about all this. Uh, Donnez-moi un break. Do find ways to build alliances, a better still, big projects together, like having royalty open the Channel Tunnel. It stands as a monument to the joint efforts and talents of our engineers, technicians and construction workers who faced and overcame many difficult and unexpected problems. But if you've already dug a big hole, 
don't keep digging. President Macron, friend or foe? The, the jury's out. And finally, if you want to encourage better Anglo-French relations, don't do as David Cameron did when hosting Francois Hollande and invite the Telegraph's Chris Hope to ask a question. Monsieur le Président, I know this is a very sensitive subject for you. Do you think your private life has made France an international joke? Are you still having an affair with Julie Gaillet and do you wish she was here? Pour l'autre question que vous m'avez posée, je ne vous répondrai pas. That was quite the uh, the trip down memory lane. I think the moral, uh, the moral of that story is maybe politicians shouldn't attempt to speak French. Uh, well, is that right? Let's speak to Sylvie Berman. She was uh, the French ambassador to the UK for three years until 2017. Sylvie, is it a good idea if British politicians attempt speaking French? Yes, absolutely. When they really speak French, uh, of course, uh, I think it's uh, uh, it's very good. Uh, and I had the privilege to attend uh, the meeting in the General Assembly with uh, uh, Tony Blair, and he spoke a very good French. Um, uh, we heard Theresa May's uh, attempt at French there as well. Um, in fact, it was Theresa May who hosted the last uh, Anglo-French summit back at uh, Sandhurst in January 2018. We've obviously had three prime ministers uh, since then. Some people might say, well, these summits are a big talking shop and nothing really happens. But how significant is it uh, that, that Rishi Sunak, as a uh, sort of early priority, decided to go to France to see President Macron? Well, I, I think, of course, it's uh, it's a very important. I don't know if you remember last time I, I was on your programme, you asked us, uh, what was the level of uh, Anglo-French relationship, and it was the lowest level. So uh, now it's a reset, and it's uh, it's very good. We are neighbours. Uh, we have a lot in common, in particular in the uh, field of uh, defence. We are also permanent members of the Security Council, and uh, uh, we are cooperating in uh, in Ukraine. And I think uh, that was something which was expected, which was difficult because of. Brexit, the consequences of Brexit and the refusal by former prime ministers, in particular Boris Johnson, in fact, to implement uh, the uh, northern uh, uh, the uh, proto northern proto proto northern island protocol. Now we have this framework, and it shows that uh, Rishi Sunak is more pragmatic. And I think uh, on both sides of the channel, we want to uh, improve our relationship. I'm trying to remember that because I asked you tonight to score uh, Anglo-French relations out of 10. And I, I, I can't remember what it was that you said, but it wasn't very high. No, it was around, uh, I don't remember, three or four. <laughs> and Peter uh, Ricketts had the same uh, uh, evaluation. So it would be different now. We are expecting this visit and we are expecting also the, the visit of King Charles at the end of the month. And so it will be a very uh, British month. Yeah, and King Charles is going on his first state visit. Um, the former Foreign Secretary William Hague uh, was on Times Radio Breakfast, as he always is on a Tuesday morning this morning. And he said he thought that Rishi Sunak's more collegiate approach could have a significant impact. Personal chemistry definitely matters at the top of politics and relationships between foreign ministers and heads of government. Like they said, this is going to be the first summit for, I think, five years between the British Prime Minister and the French President, which ought to be a normal thing. You know, we, we set these things going in 
2010, uh, when I was foreign secretary, and we had one every year. But it does matter if the if the person on the other side of the table thinks, oh, well, here's somebody I can deal with and I can have a really good conversation with and who knows all the details and who will reliably deliver on any deal we make. Well, that makes a huge difference. And you can see that Rishi is already making that difference. So that's uh, William Hague on trying to improve relations. Uh, still, we both stay on the line. I want to bring in now, we've got a British journalist in France, the Times Paris correspondent Charles Bremner's there. And then we've also got a French journalist who works in Britain, Benedict Paviot. Uh, good morning. I'm actually Anglo-French. Good morning. Anglo-French. So I've got the best of both worlds. For the purposes of the feature, <laughs> Benedict. <laughs> good to have I'm you. A Fr I'm a French citizen as well. Oh, for goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> so we'll cut all this out in the edit later. Uh, Charles, how is Rishi Sunak seen in Paris right now in comparison to his predecessors? He doesn't have a very big public profile, but he is he's welcomed by the Elysee Palace a lot. Uh, they, they want to re-establish trust. One of uh, President Macron's aides said that uh, re-establishing trust is the most important thing at the moment, rather than any specific agreements. And uh, President Macron has a bit of a bromance going with uh, Rishi Sunak, at least uh, according to some people around Macron. They, they are both former bankers, relatively new in politics and about the same age. So they get on rather well together. Yeah, uh, Benedict, how would you sum up uh, Anglo-French relations? Well, they look like they really are um, improving. Uh, and that is due, I think, very much to a different uh, prime minister. It is clear uh, that Rishi Sunak, whether it is, and um, we were in Windsor for the Windsor framework, is really trying to engage with the EU. Uh, we don't have any ad hominem personal attacks uh, on the French president or, or France, letters being published on Twitter over migration, if we remember those bats, or uh, the AUKUS in that sense betrayal. That's all behind us now. So I think uh, that it bodes well, and certainly the mindset, it's clear, in Paris is a very positive one, a very ambitious one. I think they're very conscious of Mr Sunak's um, difficulties over migration, and I think that in defence, what has to be underlined is that despite the problematic relationship, particularly under the Johnson premiership, the Donimwan break and all those sorts <laughs> of helpful uh, clips uh, for the gallery, uh, there is really defense has always that cooperation intelligence has always throughout you wouldn't know that really from reading uh, lots of the British papers but that has always been there and this can only be enhanced and the mindset is very much uh, both with this bilateral summit I was at Sandhurst it was so positive and then the five-year hiatus yeah these two this partnership is crucial it, it needs to be done and it can be a very symbiotic relationship um, Charles, clearly the, one of the big issues that Rishi Sunak, uh, domestically at least, needs uh, some help with is the question of small boats. We're getting lots of, uh, crossing the channel, we're getting lots of sort of British domestic uh, legal changes announced today. But clearly, probably the, the quickest, if not easiest way of solving this problem is if France stopped people leaving in the first place. Is there any prospect of that happening? Well, France is, of course, will say that it is already stopping a lot of people from leaving it's, uh, it's, it's increased its, uh, its patrols on the beaches a lot. They, they're turning back probably over well over half of the people trying to leave. It's just an enormously difficult task. They also uh, uh, say they just don't have the manpower. 
and they they also think it's really pretty much Britain's problem. So this is not something that's likely to make much progress between President Macron and uh, Mr. Sunak. Um, I suppose that's what... not what I was hearing from French sources oh. yesterday. Oh, they recognise that it is a sensitive issue. Um, they also point out that it's not. Uh, just about people on the beaches. That's not the way to stop it. Also, that whether it's France, Italy, Spain, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, um, it's a global problem. Uh, global migration has become much wider. Uh, there are various conflicts. Of course, uh, this needs to be addressed, and there's no easy solution. That's what was being underlined. So they understand and see the sensitivity. They want to try um, and increase the number, as Charles was saying, of breaking the smuggling rings, because that is what will be key. Yeah. Uh, but uh, is it, you, key, sorry, go on, Charles. So the, the key point is though, that France is not about to take back the, the people who arrive on the small boats, and that is the one thing that would obviously please the British the most, and there's there's absolutely no intention to do it so yeah. far. Um, um, Benedict, you mentioned the the Sandhurst summit. The way I was I was at it as well. One of the main things I remember from that is when they announced that uh, the Bayer Tapestry was coming to Britain. I mean, I'm I'm not close follower of the whereabouts of the Bayer Tapestry, but if you go on the Bayer Tapestry website, they start they 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 boast the Bayer Tapestry is still in Bayer. They can't even they can't even move a tapestry. Never mind agreeing on the on anything else. Well, I think we've gone from a freeze um, and a problematic relationship, which was bad news for everyone all around. Yeah. Uh, let's remember, it's not just about defence or strategic. I was hearing yesterday about uh, the lack of cooperation, for example, on school trips. I mean, this is. Yeah. You know, it's all ages. Uh, meanwhile, lots of Brits are you know, wanting to go uh, to France on that. But addressing your point, uh, thank you for bringing it up. I had, I have to admit, taken my off the Bayou Tapestry. <laughs> it's good that you on Times Radio brought it up. Let's uh, make it uh, something and let's look at to nice. see perhaps who knows we could get a timeline about when the Bayou Tapestry <laughs> would make it against uh, We could stitch it. We could stitch together the timeline of all the announcements. Oh, uh, nice one it. there. <laughs> See Sil what you've done there, Matt. Sylvie, uh, Sylvie uh, Berman, um, what, just talk us through how these things work, these sorts of visits, and the sort of thing, maybe maybe you could share something, the sort of thing that can go wrong or go well. Or, but take us behind the scenes of a meeting between a French president and a, and a British prime minister. Well, I think it, uh, because they get along uh, rather well or very well, I think it's uh, it's the most important because this kind of visit is it, not very difficult. It's not difficult to organize because we are close neighbors. So if it doesn't go well, it's because the relationship is not good. And this it was the, the case in the past. It, it, it's not anymore. So I, I think there won't be any problem. Um, and Charles, one thing they'll definitely be able to talk about is strikes, because as well as having lots of strikes here in the UK, uh, it, it will come as a huge shock to listeners that there's some strikes in France as well. Yes, well, today's meant to be the, the, the great showdown. This is uh, the sixth round of demonstrations against uh, President Macron's attempt to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. The militant unions are promising to bring the country to its knees, in the words of one of the CGT union people. Uh, President Macron is resisting it. He's determined to push it through, although he does have a bit of a problem with Parliament because he doesn't have a full majority. So we're in one of these classical French showdowns between the street and the government. The last time the government actually gave way on pension, gave way to the strikers over pensions was 1995 under President Chirac. But uh, this time it looks as if President Macron will, will just go ahead no matter what. Uh, well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. How, at least we'll give them something to, to, to share their um, 
uh, uh, show over over a baguette or something uh, later on this week. Really good to speak to you. Charles Bermond, the Times Paris correspondent, and uh, Benedict Paviot, who is a French journalist, ba- Anglo-French journalist based in Britain. We also heard from Sylvie Burnham, who uh, was the French ambassador to the UK for three years until uh, 2017. So we've heard about uh, how uh, relations are, are on both sides of the channel. But now let's talk talking French. Uh, let's take a listen again to uh, Tony Blair and Theresa May speaking French. Je suis resté dix semaines. Maintenant, je suis premier ministre de la Grande-Bretagne depuis dix mois. Alors j'ai fait des progrès, je crois. Je sais que notre pays serait plus pauvre si vous le quittiez. Et je souhaite que vous restiez. So let's get some marks out of 10 from them. From an actual French teacher, uh, Nicole Harris is, is in Worcestershire for us uh, this morning. Uh, bonjour. Bonjour, comment ça va? Um, <laughs> Jeremy, uh, should I, I, mean, I presume it should be uh, Ma- Madame Harris? Oh, ma- oui, je, non, je suis Nicole. I'm just, Nicole. Is, is even your students call you Nicole? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, it's very they're, they're, even, they're even older than me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Nicole, uh, give us some, give us a marks out of ten. How uh, marks out of ten for Tony Blair's French? Uh, Tony Blair's accent's awful, really. Is that uh, just all? But... I thought it was quite good. I don't think we're going to say about Theresa May in a minute. But go well, on. There, there, there was quite a story about Tony Blair, in fact, because at the time he was talking to Chirac, and he, you know, in France you've got tu and vous, and uh, when you know, obviously in politics you've got to use vous. Um, and he said to to Chirac, now Chirac is a very, um, should say, aristocratic man he used to be. And he, on, he would say vous to his wife and vous to his children. So and this is, the, the, I remember this, I remember this, vous is the formal and is two a formal. is a very informal for just your, your sort of close family and friends. That's right. And of course, saying vous to Chirac was the worst thing he could ever do. <laughs> Because, uh, sorry, saying to to yes. Chirac was the worst thing he could ever do because obviously Chirac doesn't even say uh, to to his wife yeah. or to his children. Um, and but I've got the feeling that Claire actually knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, how many what give us marks out of 10 then for, for Tony Blair's French? About five out of ten, I'd say. Five, very straight. And what about Theresa May's? About six. You thought Theresa May's was better. Yeah. Oh, there we are. Very good. Very good. I, th- I think they could do with lessons with me. I think that's probably right. So go on then. Um, how, long, how long have you been teaching French in the UK? Oh, 35 years, I think. Oh, wow. Um, it, is it becoming more or less popular? I'm getting... Now I teach on Zoom, so therefore I'm teaching all over the world. Um, I'm teaching in Africa, Kazakhstan, all sorts of places. And uh, a lot of the people that I'm teaching to now are the expats who are in France. Um, because obviously they want to be able to fit in the life in France. Um, and in most of my classes, I've got loads of expats. That's really interesting, that. Um, yeah. So so apart from the vous and the twos, yeah. uh, what what else should Rishi Sinat be careful with if he's going to try a bit of French this week? Uh, to be honest, I think Macron and Sunak will get on because they're the same age and I think they've got the same background and I think they should get on quite well personally. Um, and I think to be himself, but not to not like another prime minister who actually put his feet on the coffee table in the Elysee Palace. I don't think that was the the done thing. Who was that? Was that Boris Johnson? 
It was. Oh, yeah, there we are. There we are. So, what, so what we thought we'd do is a little service for Rishi Sunak. I'm sure he listens. Um, uh, if I give you some phrases, could you translate them into French for Rishi Sunak? Mm -hmm. Go on, then. So let's start off with, don't worry, I'm not Boris Johnson. Ne vous en faites pas, je ne suis pas Boris Johnson. Very good. Uh, we like that. Uh, 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 what about, can you help with my backbenchers? Est-ce que vous pouvez m'aider avec mes députés qui sont un... Very good. Qui me causent des difficultés, oui. Hmm? No, sorry, oh, sorry, do that again then. Can you help with my backbenchers? Oui, pouvez-vous m'aider avec... In, in France, we don't have backbenchers. I did wonder about that. That's why I included it. Yeah, yeah so it's good, good for the vote. Avec, oui, avec mes, mes députés qui me causent des problèmes. Perfect. The ones that are causing new problems. They do very much pose the problem. Um, uh, what, once a banker, always a banker, my brother. <laughs> Une fois dans la finance, toujours dans la finance. <laughs> very good. <laughs> okay, what about, uh, I think those are our fish. Oh, je pense que ce sont nos poissons. <laughs> <laughs> very good. And finally, because they do have quite a lot in common. Uh, how do you say, don't worry, I am also short and wealthy and a bit flash? Ne, ne t'en fais pas, je suis petit et je suis aussi chic. Very good. I'm sure he can use all of that on his travels this week. Uh, <laughs> Nicole, uh, thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Uh, sure, yeah. uh, and uh, yeah, best of luck with all of, the, uh, all of the Zoom lessons. Thanks so much, Nicole. Take care. Okay. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Ah, oh, you see. Once he, you know, that... that uh, a level, uh, the GCSE got grade A in French, and uh, I started doing the A level French, dropped it after a year. But it turns out you don't lose it, do you? It's like riding a uh, bicycle in whatever. Uh, uh, velo. Velo, I think you'll find. Velo. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs> 